I'm Tavis Smiley. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Delighted to have you hanging out with us today as we try to squeeze an 80-pound show into a 40-pound bag. More conversations today than I can count. And I'm just in hour two. In this hour, two great conversations on the B side of this hour. While the special prosecutor seems to have issues with President Biden's mental acuity, Congressman Ro Khanna says the president is completely mentally sharp and up for a second term. That's on the back side of this hour. We commence this hour, though, celebrating Valentine's Day with a deep dive into the evolution of love and human behavior with the preeminent scholar on the topic, Dr. Helen Fisher, senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute on the campus of Indiana University, where yours truly matriculated, Go Hoosiers, and she's also chief science advisor to the internet dating site Match. I am pleased to welcome and to have Dr. Helen Fisher on this program. Dr. Fisher, how are you today? I'm just fine. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you, too. As one Hoosier, uh, uh, a Hoosier uh, graduate, IU graduate, I'm always delighted to talk to uh, uh, anybody uh, associated with that institution. Yeah. Um, and I've long, I've been there a number, I've been there a number of times to visit, long um, uh, a fan of what you do at the Kinsey Institute. Let me start with that broad question. What, what do you do at the Kinsey Institute every day? I don't. I, um, I, I basically write books, uh, and I'm affiliated with Kinsey, and the director of Kinsey and I do a lot of academic speeches. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, basically, uh, we collect data. I collect data uh, on, on love, uh, and uh, I brought the, the director, his name is Justin Garcia, in with me, and the two of us uh, do an annual study called Singles in America. We do it with Match. We do not poll the Match members. We create about 200 questions. We put them out to the public, mm-hmm. and we watch for trends on in, in love today. So I'm almost never at Kinsey, but uh, physically, because I live in New- and work in New York and mm-hmm. actually basically write books. Sure. Uh, but uh, but I'm very much part of it and you know get all their literature, know them all, uh, uh, and uh, it's a great place. Yep. It's just a wonderful place. How, how does how does one uh, again a couple, a couple of broad questions then we'll get into the love stuff, uh, but but how does one build a career? How does one get into the lane of 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 love as a study? Well, you start, well, you, uh, well, I started in graduate school uh, for my PhD. I I wanted I'm an identical twin, and uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to know at the time everybody believed that uh, you know that. Uh, uh, the brain was an empty slate, and the environment uh, just, uh, you know, just made you who you are. And I thought to myself, wait a minute here. Mm-hmm. I mean, romantic love is a pretty strong feeling. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not sure you're taught this. I mean, people pine for love, they live for love, they kill for love, they die for love. I mean, the amount of myths and legends and poems and stories and symphonies and ballets and <laughs> operas. I mean, we are we're marinated in this thing, <laughs> you know, and so... For my PhD dissertation, I started in thinking, well, first of all, why do we bother to pair up at all? Mm-hmm. I mean, 97% of mammals don't pair up to rear their young. People do. So that started it, and I began to... And then finally, I mean, I'm, I'm most well-known. I don't know, I've written a lot of books on sure. it, but the bottom line is, uh, you know, we're the first in the world to put people in brain scanners and study the actual brain circuitry. What happens in the brain when you look at a photograph of your sweetheart and you feel that intense, powerful feelings of, of romantic love? So to answer your question, I think it's been a, well, it's been my life project. Yeah. What is love? I, I, there, there's so many things I want to talk to you about in the time I have with you. Uh, speaking of uh, 
uh, what uh, the, the, what our brain does when it comes to love. I saw, I read it just before I got on the air, a beautiful piece in today's New York Times headline, What New Love Does to Your Brain. What New yeah. Love Does to Your Brain. Our guest, Dr. Fisher, is quoted in this uh, uh, beautiful piece today in the New York Times. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But since you went there, uh, at least you went back to where your study first started, um, you got in this love lane. So let me ask you, why do we? Why do we pair up? As human beings, why do we pair up? Yeah, because for millions of years ago, I mean, there's all kinds of animals that don't need a partner to help them rear their young. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's take a mouse. A mouse is very thick milk. She can feed her babies, go out and feed herself, and that's fine. But uh, something like a fox. A fox is, this is a wonderful question, Tavis, because most people don't (laughs) ask it. I mean, a fox has very thin milk, so the female... Uh, you know, she's got to stay with the babies uh, long-term uh, until they get out of the nest, which is months. And uh, so she needs a partner to, to, to help feed her. And so 90, 90% of birds form a partnership because somebody's got to sit on those eggs and that individual's going to starve to death unless they get a partner to help them. So basically about 4 million years ago, the trees were disappearing. Our ancestors came down out of the ground. Women began to hold their babies in their arms instead of on their backs. They can't walk on all four limbs. They have to walk on two, carry the baby. Began to need a partner to rear their young. And we evolved millions of years ago these basic brain systems for romantic love, which drives you just to focus on one person, and also a second brain region for attachment, the, the brain circuitry that enables us to stick with the person after we've fallen in love, to raise your babies together. So they're very powerful brain systems, romantic love and attachment. They lie way at the base of the brain, as a Mm. matter of fact. I mean, as a matter of fact, the basic brain region that gives you the feelings of intense romantic love uh, lies right next to the factory that orchestrates thirst and hunger. Thirst and hunger keep you alive today. Romantic love drives you to form a partnership and send your DNA into tomorrow. So in one word, uh, we love, it's a survival instinct. It evolved millions of years ago, and of course we've embellished them with all of our mm. songs and dances and everything. <laughs> we build on that. <laughs> you got you got me thinking now. When we come forward, I know exactly where I want to go, because I, I wish I had time to ask it right now, but I'll hold it. We've got a lot to talk about, as we say around here. But but I'm fascinated now, uh, Dr. Fisher, by the, the love that gets us into these relationships, uh, that thing that, that makes us want to pair up. And the distinct difference between that and that thing that keeps us in or doesn't keep us in. Um, so the thing that gets us in is strong enough to get us there. But if it were equally as strong, it would keep us there. But the divorce rate in this country is off the charts. Um, so what, what's the disconnect? Uh, what's, what's that disconnect about? We'll, we'll, we'll probe that and a great deal more with the leading scholar on love, Dr. Helen Fisher, who joins us right now on Tavis Smiley. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. All right, Dr. Helen Fisher, tell me uh, more about what gets us there versus what keeps us or doesn't keep us there. Yeah. Well, what, what, what starts it all is uh, that little brain system for romantic love. I mean, this is a little factory near the very base of the brain, 
and it makes dopamine and gives you that intense feeling of craving, obsession, energy. You suddenly feel this is the most special person on earth. I mean, their car is different from every other car in the parking lot. Uh, you can walk and talk all night, euphoria when things are going well, emotional dependence. You check on your text messages to see if they've written real sexual desire, possessiveness, jealousy. And the most, the biggest aspect of intense romantic love, what gets you is this intrusive thinking. You obsessively think about this person day and night. And so that's what starts it. And it's a basic brain system. I mean, I always think it's a little bit like a, a sleeping cat. It can be triggered instantly. You walk into a room, you see somebody who's really cute, charming, they smile at you. They look like they could fit into what I call your love map, what you're looking for in a partner. You're ready to fall in love, and boom, the brain system can can get itself tr- uh, triggered. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, um, but that's what starts it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, with time, if things are well, I mean, during the course of courtship, you know, there's breaking points mm-hmm. and there's escalation points. And you get enough breaking points, you, you walk out. Uh, and the escalation points can, points can continue to build, and and also you begin to grow feelings of attachment, this second brain system, this sense of cosmic union to a particular individual. What you really want to do in a long-term partnership is keep all three of the basic brain systems for mating and reproduction alive. Keep the sex drive alive. That can actually trigger feelings of romantic love and attachment, uh, you want to do novel things together, drive up the dopamine system so you can sustain feelings of romantic love, and you want to stay in touch, kissing and hugging, holding hands, walking arm in arm, learning to sleep next to somebody for a period of time, sitting next to them, watching television and holding hands, all of that can sustain feelings of attachment. So you want to keep all three of these basic brain systems alive. And what's interesting is that you, are, you, you, you were talking about divorce mm-hmm. and why is it that some people, you know, it doesn't work. Well, basically, um, you probably picked the wrong person for <laughs> <a lot of laughs> partnership. <laughs> and, you know, for millions of years, our, 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 our ancestors did have several long-term partnerships, and probably for a Darwinian reason, mm-hmm. because if you have babies by, with, by more than one person, uh, that was adaptive for millions of years. But the bottom line is, actually, Tavis, I am actually quite hopeful about the future. I call it slow love. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing today is people um, uh, marrying much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my day, they were married at around age 20. Uh, these days, they're married around almost age 30. That's uh, 10 years of figuring out who you are, mm-hmm. trying people out, getting rid of what you don't want, and by the time you walk down the aisle around age 30 on average, you know who you got, you think you can keep who you've got, and you think this can work. And um, all of my data, not only from Match, but uh, but uh, I've looked at divorce in, in uh, 80 cultures around the world mm-hmm. and in hunter-gatherers, the, the longer you court and the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain together. And that's exactly what's mm. happening around the world today. I'm actually quite optimistic about the future. I think the young today, boy, they are picky, man. The young are all the, they're creating all these new terms. I mean, benching and ghosting and, and <laughs> you know, you name it, man, they got it. Yeah. But they're defining all, they're, they're, they're dicing and chopping and understanding what love is. And 
figuring out who they are and marrying later. I mm. think they may even usher in a few decades of relative family stability. Mm. Uh, from your mouth to God's ears, uh, let's, just put, let's just put it that way. Uh, um, let me let me ask about these love maps. Um, uh, these love maps. Are, are are we? How do I want to phrase this? Are we actually? Are we literally the architects of our love maps, or is that a bit more to do with biology, DNA, or do we actually do we actually create these love maps? Both. Okay. Absolutely both. Okay. I mean, we do know that we tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic and ethnic background, same degree of intelligence, good looks, education, same uh, religious and, and social values, uh, same uh, reproductive and, and economic goals. Your childhood always plays a role. I'll say it again. Your childhood always plays a role. But, you know, you can walk into a room and everybody's from your background and same level of education and good looks, and you don't fall in love with them, all of them. So that's why I've spent the last mm, 20 years mm. trying to figure out the biological part. A good 40 to 60% of the differences between people is genetic. Mm. I mean, some people are better at singing on two. Some people are more cautious. Some people are better hitting the tennis ball. Some people are more adventurous. We know there's biology to behavior. So what I wanted to find out is why are we naturally drawn to one person rather than another? And I wrote a book on it uh, several years ago called Why Him, Why Her. Sorry, I went to a party last night and everybody was screaming, so I'm losing my voice here. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, um, what I ended up finding is people who are very expressive of the traits in the dopamine system in the brain, I call them explorers, are drawn to people like themselves. If they are, uh, if you're an explorer, you're risk-taking, novelty-seeking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, they're drawn to people like themselves. People who are very expressive of the serotonin system, I call them builders. Uh, not a great term, but uh, uh, over 15 million people have taken my questionnaire, so I'm stuck with the terms now. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> they're traditional, conventional, follow the rules, respect authority. They are drawn I, also to people like themselves. Mike Pence is a good example. Mitt Romney, they're good. They're traditional people drawn to traditional and yet, people. No, and, and yet, as I listen to you, that makes sense, Dr. Fisher. And yet, I, I, am, I am mindful of this term, as are you, that we've heard time and time again, that it is opposites that attract. Right. And that's the other two uh, basic brain systems. Testosterone goes for estrogen, and estrogen goes for testosterone. So if you're very high testosterone... You tend to be analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, skeptical, good at things like math, engineering, computers, etc. You're drawn to your opposite. I call those people directors. You're drawn to the high estrogen, which I call negotiators, people who see the big picture, see long-term, quite imaginative, very intuitive, good at reading posture, gesture, tone of voice, empathetic, and they're drawn to the opposite. But what's really important here is that we express all four of these brain systems. Mm -hmm. No other questionnaire puts you in this bucket or that bucket. It's not the way the brain works. So the bottom line is, for example, my husband and me, we're both very high dopamine. Been all over the world. We do things at the spur of the moment. Uh, we write for a living. That requires creativity, etc. We're both high dopamine. Works fine. He's very high testosterone, and I'm very high estrogen. That's where the opposites in us attract. And... Mm. Uh, but he is higher on serotonin than I am. He's more likely to follow the rules. And what's interesting is we were walking along. We live in New York, and they were, I was going to cut through this place, to these sort of field to get to the subway. And on this field was a little sign that said, uh, don't walk on the grass. Mm -hmm. So I started across the field to get to the subway, and my husband said, you can't walk on the grass. 
And I said, there hasn't been any grass here in 50 years. And he says, you can't walk on the grass. So the bottom line is, we all, yeah, take the questionnaire. I mean, the bottom line is, what's nice about this is, is we're so marinated in psychology. I'm very big on believing in psychology. There's all kinds of good psychological things to learn, to do, to make a long-term partnership. But there's parts of us who are just who we are. And the more you can understand who somebody really is, you can overlook. It's called positive illusions. Just you can overlook overlook it. Yeah. Yep. I, um, I, I, I assume, uh, in part, we use this phrase because it rhymes, and when things rhyme, it makes it easier. But why do we always say uh, to you and your husband, happy wife, happy life, but never the equivalent of happy husband, happy something? I think it's a real mistake. I think this whole thing about toxic masculinity is so sad. You know, I mean, there's so many good men in the world. Men fall in love faster than women do. They fall in love more than often than women do. They are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves. Look at what things men do for women. I think it's, I hope the pendulum will swing back to understand how happy husband, happy life works just as well mm-hmm. as happy wife, happy life. Yep. I mentioned the New York Times piece earlier. I was fascinated by this piece. The headline um, is, What New Love Does to Your Brain? Roses are red, violets are blue. Romance can really mess with you. That's the subtitle. <laughs> but t- tell me, because you quoted in this piece, in this article, what does new love do to our brains? It, it, it gives you obsession. Yeah. Um, it starts to trigger the little... Um, factory called the ventral tegmental area lying near the base of the brain and gives you that focus, the motivation, the energy, the butterflies in the stomach, the emotional dependence, the separation anxiety, the craving for sex, and basically the obsessive thinking about somebody. And in terms of messes with your brain, mm-hmm. Travis, nobody gets out of love alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all make mistakes. But you know what? Cupid keeps working. Mm-hmm. Cupid keeps at it. We're built to love. We're built to fall in love all our lives. You just got to give Cupid a chance. Yeah. Um, I, I'm asking this in part because I, I uh, experienced this the other day, and most of us have. You live long enough, you'll experience it. But we see these stories uh, from time to time. And again, if you live long enough, you'll see it in your own life, where there's a couple that's been together forever, forever. Yeah. And one of them dies, and everybody panics because they know the other one's going to die like shortly thereafter. And yeah. this, this stuff seems real. Is it real? Uh, nobody's ever put the people in the brain scanner, so I can't say anything except for sure. These are basic brain systems. And, you know, I mean, what has this person lost? They've, 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 they've lost what they regard as everything in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we only see them at parties, this and, but all the snuggling, all their jokes, all their memories, everything in life that they've put together, but also all their daily habits, mm-hmm. routines, uh, rituals of, of Christmas or whatever, you know, um, and, so, and so sure, you know, you can even uh, die from rejection in love. You can get a heart attack or a stroke. We are playing this... Romantic love and feelings of deep attachment are among the most powerful yeah. brain systems the human animal has ever evolved. I mean, you lose your job, you don't jump out the window. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't stay in bed for a month crying. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, love is so horrible when it's 
not working. Yeah. And really such a thrill. Life's greatest thrill. I'm glad you went there because I wanted to go there. And I've got about three minutes left with you. And I want to go in this direction if I can. Uh, because it's Valentine's Day and everybody, uh, for, at least for this day, everybody's in love today. We'll see what tomorrow brings. <laughs> but today, <laughs> today, er- everybody's in love. But you, you put your finger on something I want to get to right quick. And that is what your advice is for those who are in pain today. Those in pain yeah. today and other days because they have been rejected in love uh, and having a hard time navigating that process. Yeah. Uh, first of all, it will end. There's various stages to rejection in love. First there's shock and some hope. Then uh, uh, and then you try to win the person back, uh, protest, trying to win them back. Mm-hmm. Then resignation and despair. And then finally the day comes and, they, and you feel indifference. And you have what I call post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And, but the bottom line is, you can you can speed it up. For God's sakes, go out with friends, get hugs and kisses from other people. That'll drive up the oxytocin system. You know, don't lie in bed and cry. Uh, get moving. You know, there's somebody camping in your head. You got to get them out. And so I would say, create a story of what happened here. When you got the story done, then you can bury it and move on. But I, I mean, I personally would get on some dating sites and at least meet some new people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes this despair is a wake up call. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've made mistakes. You're learning some it, from it. Now you're going to get going again. And it's possible that we all get rejected in love. As I said, nobody gets out alive. We recover. You will recover. If you're listening to this program, you will recover. Just get moving. Get around people. Get around people who are laughing. That drives up dopamine. Get some exercise. That drives up dopamine. Get hugs and kisses. That drives up oxytocin. Gives you feelings of attachment and optimism. You can get out of this alive. Do it. Mm. Finally, um, uh, is, is there value in having days like Valentine's Day? There are people who have, di- there are people who have different mindsets about this. Uh, they're all into it. They love it. They're doing the flowers and the candy and all that, the dinners and all the stuff. There are others who are like, man, I'm not, I, I don't need a day to tell me that I have to tell you that I love you. It's just crass commercialism. So how do you view Valentine's Day? Well, for me, it's work. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see that uh, coming. I should have saw that coming. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. (laughs) And and eventually, I'll go buy myself a piece of a beautiful cookie. So, so your let let, let me let me guess. Your favorite day of the year is the day after Valentine's Day. You got it. You got it, kid. (laughs) No, I mean to be serious about it. I think for a lot of people, it is a day to say what you haven't said a lot of other days, yeah. you know, I think it is a day to try and do something special. And if you don't have somebody special, it's a wake up call day. Yeah. And you've got to say, okay, I don't have anybody special. I should go out with friends and do other things, but I better get on those dating sites or get, or, or begin to figure out, uh, you know, how I get this solved. Because, you know, as I think I may have said, you know, people in long term relation, happy relationships live yeah. five to 10 years longer, longer. Yeah. It's worth it. I hear you. Um, She is Senior Research Fellow at the Kinsey Institute and Chief Science Advisor to the Internet Dating Site Match, and she's awfully good at what she does. She is Dr. (laughs) Helen Fisher. Dr. Fisher, happy Valentine's Day. And same to you, kid.